Hey everyone, I'm Dominique. And I'm Heidi. Welcome to More Grats. We're glad you decided to waste some time with us. We want to thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it more than you know. Absolutely. Thank you. Before we start, we want to remind you that we are talking about death. If you are easily offended by rude humor and foul language or are particularly sensitive to discussions about death, you may want to pass on this podcast. We are wildly inappropriate at times, but that comes directly from growing up in a funeral home. The way we insulate ourselves is by humor, and for us, it's a lot better to laugh, even when you feel like crying. In this episode, we'll discuss a primal fear humans have dealt with since the beginning of time, animal attacks. Our death story will touch on people who have died from wild animal attacks, but they won't be our focus. Ooh, so they're just little nibbles. Exactly. Our main focus will be on someone whose life was cut short by none other than man's best friend. And our funeral home story tells of why sometimes a new puppy is not always a great addition to the family. As always, if any of this subject matter makes you uncomfortable, please feel free to skip this episode. That said, welcome to episode four. Don't worry, he won't bite. So Heidi, you are not an animal lover. No, I'm not. And I don't apologize for it. Hey, I have a friend who doesn't like kids. She doesn't want kids on her property, let alone have any herself. And I respect that, just like I expect the same courtesy for not going gaga over animals. In other words, don't don't fucking fucking judge. In fact, I've seen you recoil when an animal approaches you. True, I'm not like you, however. So, remember when we were in Cabo and those two guys came up to us at the beach? You couldn't give two shits about them wanting to buy us drinks. You were only interested in their dog. (laughs) I'm a married woman. Well, so am I, but free drinks are free drinks. (laughs) (laughs) That is very true. Well, it's obvious why we should be fearful of wild animals. They are unpredictable and they're not used to being around humans. And they usually attack because they feel threatened. Even animal experts are not immune to fatal attacks. Remember Steve Irwin? Known as the crocodile hunter. Crikey. (laughs) (laughs) I can still hear him saying that. I can too. Loved him. Irwin, Irwin hosted a show by that name and was highly regarded as a skilled and very capable animal handler. His larger than life personality endeared him to fans around the globe and the world was crushed in 2006 when he died from a barb to the chest inflicted by a frightened stingray. Another well-known person to die from an animal attack was Timothy Treadwell or Grizzly Man. Treadwell shunned modern society and preferred to spend much of his time among the bears in Alaska. In fact, he only returned to the lower 48 during the winter. For years, he studied bears and became very acquainted with the individual creatures. In 2003, circumstances were such that he stayed longer into autumn than intended. Timothy and his girlfriend, Amy Huguenard, who was never comfortable around bears, encountered a large male they were not familiar with. The huge bear attacked the couple in their tent, consuming most of their bodies. The entire attack was captured on Treadwell's video camera, but since the camera's lens was obstructed, it only recorded the terrifying sounds. The audio has not been made public, and by all accounts, from those who have heard it, the audio is so disturbing, it should never be released. Okay, truth. Hmm. Would you listen? Uh, You know, I can stare at look at dead bodies all day long, but I don't think I could ever watch somebody die or hear somebody die. But truthfully, yeah, 
I'd probably listen. Me too. I'd listen and regret it. That's yeah, that's yeah. It would haunt me, but I would probably not be able to refrain yeah. from listening to it. Yeah. Well, it's easy to understand why Stephen Irwin and Timothy Treadwell died. Their jobs were inherently dangerous, and I'm sure they always knew it was possible for them to die at the hands of wildlife. You mean paws or claws or teeth? <laughs> <laughs> then there's the death of Don Branchot. Don was a trainer at SeaWorld, and she worked with orcas, better known as killer whales. Killer whale. That should be your first sign. <laughs> Don had worked with the orcas at SeaWorld for 15 years and was considered the park's poster girl. On February 24th, 2010, she was performing in a show which featured Tillicum, a 36-year-old male orca. As spectators watched, Tillicum grabbed Dawn, either by the ponytail or her shoulder, and dragged her into the water. Other SeaWorld employees tried to distract Tillicum and get him to another pool, but he didn't release Dawn's body for 45 oh minutes. The autopsy report said she died of drowning and blunt force trauma. Now, just to give you an idea of how powerful an orca is, it didn't seem like Tillicum was mauling Dawn. I mean, he just dragged her under the water. He wasn't thrashing her around, I guess. But these were her injuries severed spinal cord, jaw, rib, and cervical vertebrae fractures, dislocations of her left knee and elbow, and her scalp was completely torn off her head. That is terrifying. Hey, Dee Dee, do you know what a dork is? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell me? It's a whale's dick. <laughs> so all those little kids running around calling each other dorks? Yeah, they don't have a clue. No, they don't. <laughs> hey, you wheel penis. <laughs> You're just a big whale penis. <laughs> You're a dork. Yeah, a dork. I still call you that. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. What was What's not so comprehensible is the number of fatal attacks by the very animals millions of people have in their own homes. Dog attacks are shockingly common. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, there were 226 fatal dog attacks between 2018 and 2021. Holy shit. Now you know why I don't own a dog. <laughs> One case that brought this issue to the forefront was the 1980 death of nine-week-old Azaria Chamberlain. Azaria and her family went camping at Uluru in Australia's Northern Territory. Uluru was previously known as Ayers Rock, and it's a popular tourist attraction. Lindy, Azaria's mother, put her to sleep in the tent, and later, when Lindy went to check on Azaria, the baby was gone. Both Lindy and her husband, Michael, had seen dingoes, which are Australian wild dogs, stalking the area, and they insisted that one of them had snatched their infant daughter. This theory seemed outlandish, and public op opinion was that Lindy, Lindy had killed her baby and Michael was covering for her. Lindy would spend three years in prison and the family would be torn apart before it was finally concluded that the Chamberlains were telling the truth. The movie A Cry in the Dark starring Meryl Streep dramatizes this case. Yeah, I tried to watch that movie years and years ago. <laughs> I asked her, I really loved the movie and I asked Heidi, I told her to watch it and when I asked her how she liked it, she said, well, it was really hard for me to understand because they were speaking that Australian. <laughs> young <laughs> a dingo ate my baby that's pretty much all i can remember i think you lost I, you missed your calling yeah yeah that's a nice accent right a yeah. dingo ate my baby one of the most vicious terrifying attacks of a fatal dog of a oh, hold on i'm gonna start that over one of the most vicious terrifying cases of a fatal dog attack happened in 2001 in san francisco california 
Diane Whipple was 33 years old and though petite at five, five feet three inches tall and weighing 110 pounds, she was incredibly fit and strong. She was a lacrosse coach at the collegiate level and was adored by her players and colleagues. Diane lived with her partner, Sharon, in the upscale neighborhood of Pacific Heights in San Francisco. Life was going well for Diane. She was thriving in her career, had a solid relationship with a loving partner, and had a safe place to call home. Well, a relatively safe place. The neighborhood was fantastic and her apartment was everything she wanted, but the only, the, there's one thing that tainted Diane's world the neighbors down the hall and their massive Presa Canario dogs. These dogs, a male named Bane and a female called Hera, were not only huge, but they were also a menace. Bane weighed 130 pounds and Hera weighed over 100 pounds. They threatened occupants of the apartment building with their aggressive behavior and their owners, a married couple, Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller, could not control them. Some tenants of the building carried pepper spray to defend themselves against the dogs, while others rearranged their schedules entirely simply to avoid the vicious beasts. So they were basically prisoners in their own homes. Yes, yeah, it seems so. Every time Diane left her apartment, she had the habit of cracking the door and checking the hallway. If there was no sign of Bane and Hera, she would hurry down the hall to the elevator. If the dogs were out, Diane would close the door and wait for them to go into the Noel Noer Noel Noller home and leave only when they were safely locked behind the closed door. On January 26, 2001, Diane returned to her apartment after a trip to the market. She had almost made it to her front door when Marjorie Noller exited her apartment with Bane and Hera. Bane attacked Diane being, and being outweighed by the enormous dog by at least 20 pounds, Diane did not stand a chance. Bane's sharp fangs pierced Diane's trachea, and she was savagely assaulted. Tenants who had heard Diane's screams called 911, but by the time help arrived, it was too late. Diane had been bitten on every part of her body. Only the top of her head and the soles of her feet were spared injury. At first, some people in the community had sympathy for Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller. Well, yeah, I mean, what a horrible situation to be in. I can see myself certainly feeling sorry for the victim, of course, but also feeling a little sorry for the dog owners. I mean, they didn't plan for that to happen. No, but you won't feel sorry for them for long. Noel and Noller lost all sympathy when they took zero responsibility for their dog's actions and even tried to blame Diane okay, for the attack. Okay, what, what, what? Yep, you heard me. They said Diane must have been doing steroids or was wearing some kind of perfume that triggered Bane's attack response. What assholes. Yeah, they are pieces of work. There's so much more I could tell you about them, but I'm not gonna get into it. Look them up if you want to read about them. Anyway, the case gained so much attention that there was a change of venue and the trial was moved to Los Angeles. Noel's and Noller's defense attorney, Nedra Ruiz, garnered her own ire from the public. She had the gall to ask Diane's partner, Sharon, if you had made a complaint against the dogs earlier, might Diane still be alive today? The question drew gasps from the jury and the judge told Sharon she didn't have to answer. Ruiz also accused the first responders of spending too much time trying to wrangle Bane and Hera and not enough time tending to Diane. The medical examiner refuted this, saying Diane's injuries were too extensive for her to survive. One damning piece of evidence was a letter written by a veterinarian. 
After examining Bain and Hera, the vet had grown so concerned, he took the unprecedented step of writing to Noel and Noller, emphatically warning them that the canines would be a liability in any household. Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller were found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, and Marjorie was also convicted of second-degree murder. Noel died in prison, and Noller is still there. Good. Keep her in the cage your dog should have been in. Sorry, dog lovers. <laughs> well, I got my information from thecrimewire.com, sfgate.com, and Wikipedia. Are you ready to get into our funeral home story? Absolutely. <clears throat> All right. The Undertaker is happy. It isn't often he gets to cut loose and relax, but he has found someone to cover his duties for the weekend, and he plans to make the most of it. He's been in the beer garden for most of the afternoon. It's the only place to get away from the bustle of this small town festival with its schlocky booths of carnival crap and screaming children. And besides, he likes beer. The sun is just about to sink over the hills in the west when he hears a familiar grating commotion. He looks toward the edge of the temporary fence, segregating miners from the sacred space of the beer garden and sees his three children. They're, they are screaming at him to come closer. Where's their mother, he wonders. Then he remembers his wife has to work in the ladies' auxiliary booth until eight that evening. The undertaker stands unsteadily and walks toward the fence. His kids are beaming and the youngest holds something in her arms. Can we keep her? They all cry together, little eyes full of anticipation. We promise we'll take care of her. The undertaker tries to focus on the puffy, cream-colored blob in his youngest child's embrace. All he wants is to get back to his IPA. Sure, he says, now go play. The children scream and run off into the crowd. They're headed in the direction of the ladies' auxiliary booth. His wife can take it from here. The next morning, the undertaker wakes up and finds a glass of water and two aspirin on his bedside table. He senses trouble. When he walks into the kitchen, his wife is standing at the window, her lips pressed into a thin line. What were you thinking? She snarls. The undertaker grabs a mug from the cupboard and pours himself some coffee. He squints into the bright morning and sees his three children playing in the yard with a tiny cream-colored puppy. Shit, he mutters. Shit is right, his wife says. Can we take it back, he asks. His wife turns to him and lodges her hands on her hips. And break their hearts? No, we can't take it back. He sips. His head hurts. They got me while I was in the beer garden. Well, they're not stupid. The undertaker and his wife stand at the window, watching the kids frolic with their new puppy. Her name is Polly. Better get used to it. As much as the undertaker's wife insists Polly is their children's responsibility, it's not long before he realizes whose dog Polly really is. The pup sleeps on his wife's pillow, sits on her lap while she works in the funeral home office, even lies at her feet when she's on the toilet. Wherever the undertaker's wife goes, so does Polly. So when the fluff ball follows her into the prep room and plants itself under the embalming table as she styles a dead lady's hair, the undertaker must put his foot down. Listen, he says, I don't care if that dog is your shadow, but it can't be in here. She's not hurting anything. She's just lying there. 
The undertaker doesn't want to fight, but having an animal in the prep room is not acceptable to him. He treads lightly. After today, would you mind if it doesn't come into the prep room? The undertaker's wife violently shakes a can of hairspray and lets go a long mist over the dead woman's bluish hair. It's name is Polly. She stomps out of the prep room and the dog dutifully follows. Several days have passed and, to the undertaker's relief, his wife has kept the dog out of the prep room. He knew she would. She's a reasonable woman. He is not looking forward to his task today. It's going to be very unpleasant, but it must be done. The undertaker stands in the prep room, working out in his mind the best way to accomplish this task. The large chest freezer needs to be cleaned. Someday, he hopes to purchase a larger cooler, one that can hold more than one body but that will have to be later once they can afford it. The freezer is only used for extreme cases, such as bloody accidents or drownings, or when the person is already decomposing so much, extreme cold is needed to hold them together. Sometimes, when no next of kin can be located, state law requires him to hold onto a body for 90 days. Chilled or not, that amount of time does not agree with dead flesh. He lifts the lid to the freezer. It doesn't smell too bad, that's because ice has trapped all the foul odors. Blood and body fluid cakes the bottom of the tray. It looks like an ice rink from hell. Once the freezer defrosts and everything liquefies, the prep room is going to stink. The smell might even creep into the house. The undertaker eyes the slope of the prep room floor, satisfied that any escaping fluid will run into a drain under the embalming table. He unplugs the freezer, then opens the frosted glass window and a door leading to the garage. The air is still stagnant, so he props open the garage door to encourage ventilation. Nothing to do now but wait. He heads to the house to grab some breakfast. Several hours later, the undertaker detects an odor. It's unmistakable, so he changes into clothes he knows he'll end up throwing away and starts for the prep room. As he draws closer, he hears a rhythmic sound, a wet, constant sound, like something is dripping on the floor. He closes his eyes. This is not going to be fun. The undertaker opens the door to the prep room and stops in his tracks. Heat climbs into his cheeks and he clenches his jaw. A cream-colored fur ball stands in the middle of a putrid puddle, its pink tongue lapping up the vile stew as if it were a gourmet meal. The dog looks up at the interruption and stares at the undertaker, licking its tiny jowls. The undertaker lunges. Get the fuck out of here, he screams at the scurrying pet. The dog is too fast for him to catch and the undertaker chases it out of the prep room and into the garage. It squeezes under the impossibly small gap under the garage door. Small brownish paw prints mark the, dog, the dog's trail. The undertaker heaves open the garage door and follows the trail to his own front door, which is open. He can hear his wife inside the house speaking in that sing-song voice she uses when talking to Polly. He wants to warn his wife not to touch the dog, but it's too late. The undertaker enters the house and finds her cradling Polly in his arms, in her arms, the dog frantically licking his wife's face. Pew, Polly, what did you get into? The undertaker's wife looks down at the rust-colored smears on her shirt. Gross, you need a bath. The undertaker, utterly speechless, speechless can only watch as his wife carries the fluff ball upstairs to the bathroom. Stop licking, Polly, she says, her words muffled from the dog's tongue on her lips. 
As he hears the bathtub faucet roar to life, the undertaker wonders if she, he should tell his wife she's essentially ingested dead people. And as the vial rises in his throat, he wonders how long it will be before he kisses her again. <laughs> that is so disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> Poor mom. Poor mom. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Remember, be kind. And any day above ground is a good one. And finally, keep, keep on breathing. breathing.